Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Good morning. Uh, my name is Yvette Cabrera. I cover environmental justice issues. I'm currently working on a, an investigation on lead contamination for the McGraw Center for Business Journalism. And uh, for most of my career, I've done my reporting in California um, in urban center. So I was really excited when SEJ asked me to moderate this panel because I think it's an important topic. Um, I think all of us have been in that situation where in order to get a good story, you have to build that trust. And um, covering rural areas especially can be difficult when you're based in urban centers. Um, so we're going to cover a lot of area today. But um, before we start, um, I just wanted to say uh, a little bit. Um, I am My parents are from Mexico. I'm the daughter of immigrants. And so we came with a lot of cultural traditions that I think a lot of us here on the panel understand um, as Latinos. Um, Mexicans are mestizos, and so we're a mix of indigenous, Hispanic, um, and, and that includes a respect for the land, but also traditions that my parents, for example, you know, I can't tell you how many times, I, I like to say <laughs> Latinos are the original recyclers and the original environmentalists because, you know, rather than use Tupperware, my mom recycles, you know, giant cottage cheese containers and sends chorizo con papas over to my house in these giant cottage cheese containers. Um, but everything from, you know, um, spending my summers in Mexico with my relatives and going to the mercados with our, you know, mesh bags um, instead of uh, plastic bags, um, all of that is part of our tradition. And so I'm hoping we can um, address some of those issues. And of course, topical issues that um, I hope can um, sort of uh, address some of the climate change, public lands issues as well. So um, why don't we get started? I'm going to have each of the panelists introduce themselves and just five minutes um, on what motivated them to do the work that they're doing. Hi, my name is Beatriz Soto, and I run the Defiende Nuestra Tierra program for Wilderness Workshop. Wilderness Workshop is a nonprofit organization that works in the White River National Forest and surrounding BLM and public lands in the Roaring Fork Valley here in the west part of Colorado. Um, a lot of the work, I don't know if you all know this, but the White River National Forest is the most visited forest in the United States, because we have 11 ski resorts on public lands. Um, so this is the area that we work in, and the demographics of this area sometimes aren't represented in the national stories. Um, we are 30% Latino in this area. Um, and what motivated me to do this work, I am actually an architect, and I have been working in sustainable construction and design for the past 20 years. And I just felt that I needed to be more vocal about environmental issues and the things that Latino care about, um, sustainable design, construction, preserving our lands. And the public lands arena gave me a lot more of a landscape to um, speak my voice and have a better representation than in the construction industry. So that's kind of why I moved a little bit. Um, but I feel like all these things are interconnected anyways. Oh, yeah. 
Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Chela Garcia. I am Director of Conservation Programs with Hispanic Access Foundation. We're a national nonprofit based out of Washington, D.C. I'm actually based in Denver, so only about an hour away. Um, and we work to um, elevate Latino voices and leaders in areas where we're underrepresented, and that's pretty much every field. But we, <laughs> we work in three primary fields. One is leadership development for faith leaders. One is a workforce development program. So we have over 60 Latino paid internships and fellowships with the U.S. Forest Service, National Park Service, BLM, pretty much any uh, federal public land agency that you can think of, and, and Water Conservation Agency, we have an intern or a fellow with them. Um, and I say paid because that's a very important uh, component because, you know, a lot of the time our work is undervalued. Um, and then lastly, we have our conservation program. So we work with um, on issues around public lands, water conservation, climate change, and we're actually moving into the oceans space as well. And what we do is... Um, Bridge, bridge access between resources, information, um, and, and general decision maker uh, agencies. So, you know, elected officials, utilities, um, at, at all levels, so local, state, and federal, with constituents. Because the biggest thing that we've noticed is a lack of access. It's not that they're not informed or haven't experienced these things, but really it's, it's a lack of access to those decision makers. So we really try and bridge those through roundtables, film screenings that show our faces and our experiences, um, and a handful of other activities. Um, but yeah. Uh, good morning. My name is Armando Elenes. I'm the Secretary Treasurer for the United Farm Workers and also oversee the UFW's uh, uh, membership operations. Um, the UFW, for those not familiar, um, is in its truest form, it's a labor union, but we do a lot more than that. We've never really uh, kind of constrained ourselves to that space. Uh, and so, you know, just recently we're doing a lot of work in terms of a major fight on immigration reform on behalf of farm workers, trying to figure out what that's going to look like uh, for the current workforce, uh, guest workers that are uh, flooding uh, the country, and figuring out how to protect them as well. Uh, they're just simply coming through a different process versus the desert. Um, and then also, we've been working a lot tremendously with uh, heat legislation. Uh, over the last, uh, I want to say about 10 years, we've been uh, enacting major heat legislation in California, which is now, we're pushing it to become the national standard. It's with climate change, with everything, uh, as you can see, farm workers are probably one of the most exposed workers uh, with that. And so you'll see them uh, wearing their bandanas, and most people say, well, they're hiding their faces. They must be hiding something. And what they're really hiding is hide, trying to protect themselves from the sun, uh, trying to protect themselves from the dust and the other elements that are, that are exposed. And the last thing I want to mention um, is we've been really advocating on health care for farm workers. Uh, most farm workers don't have access to health care. So uh, when they do get health care, especially through us, it takes a while for them to, to kind of... Uh, I guess you could say uh, acclimatize, get that experience because they've been they've been used to not having anything. Period, and so we're working on that as well. Uh, so, and I'm really excited uh, to be here first time uh, coming to SCJ, trying to learn as much as I can about it. Uh, and what motivated me uh, again, my family is also originally from Mexico. Uh, I migrated with them when I was eight years old. Uh, got caught twice, made it on the third time. Uh, but, uh, you know, we were able to legalize in 86 uh, through the IRCA. But uh, what really motivated me as I learned what 
farm workers were doing, and I learned from my dad and others that work in the fields, and I learned what the UFW was doing when I was in college, um, that we could create an impact. And I just love, I've been with the organization now for about over 20 years, uh, and I just love the fact that every day we're doing something different. Every day we're involved in a different space, and, and we're basically doing things that most people consider impossible to do, we don't know any better, so we do it anyways. So, uh, so it's just it's really inspiring to be here and wake up every day and have something that I love to do. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Armando. So I thought we'd start with you, Beatriz. Um, I was hoping you can talk a little bit about um, Defienda Nuestra Tierra. Uh, it works a lot trying to provide opportunities to um, Latinos with regards to access to public lands. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around um, Latinos in the environment. And, and so I was hoping you can talk about, because this is not a, a struggle to convince Latinos to respect the land or use the land. So I was hoping you can talk a little bit about the, the work that you've done in this area um, and address some of those issues. So I think you're absolutely right. Latinos are not foreign to environmental justice, um, to climate change, and to some of these conversations. I feel like sometimes the media doesn't accurately cover that you know we are people that care about the, these issues and we have for generations and we're always treated like we're new to this we're ignorant and i think that is a very it's a misrepresentation of the latino people um, as you had mentioned before the majority of us come from a mestizo background so there is a lot of indigenous blend in our blood and in our culture and we are very much um, attached to the land um, unfortunately, through a lot of migration and trauma and what that means, sometimes we feel like we're not connected to the specific land that we're living on or where we're moving. And that's the dialogue that we're really trying to change and say, regardless of where you are, where you come from, this is the land, it is our land, we must protect it and we are a part of this. Um, even though, again, there's generations of Latinos in the United States that have been here for 10 generations, they still do not, this, their story is not the story of the land. So I think that, again, it's a misrepresentation that we do not belong, that we do not care. So a lot of the things that we're doing is trying to explain to um, the media and also to the Latino population that it's okay to use the land differently and that does not mean that you are not a steward or you do not have the same access availability. Um, again, you'll see you know, your typical hiker that will hike 10 miles and it's just in silence and solitude. Maybe the Latino community brings their whole family and they do a carne asada and they do a totally different event, but they're still connecting and they're still enjoying it. And we just wanna reaffirm that the way that you use it and the way that your history and your culture um, connects to the land is validated and those stories should be shared as well. And going off of that, um, Chela, I was wondering if you could talk about um, the, there have been some interesting polling numbers about Latinos in the environment, and I know your foundation has, um, works off of those poll numbers to access, and I have some of those here. I don't, you know, I don't need you to look them up, but I was just wondering if um, you might be able to talk about, um, especially the work that you're doing in hard to reach communities, sort of what is the message that you bring to them and what has been the response from those communities as you've reached out to them? Oh, actually, uh, 
Um, so yes, thank you for bringing up the polling. I think that's a big um, gap that is identified in, in a lot of the environmental and conservation work that a lot of nonprofits and agencies do and is also reported on. Um, you know, I can read off a couple of numbers such as 94% of Latinos see public lands as, an, as national parks, forests, monuments, and wildlife areas as an essential part of the economies of their states. This is actually a lot higher. This is through the Colorado College poll, which we work with fairly closely to pull specifically Latino data um, out of the data set. And we've been doing this for a few years now, and we continuously see that Latinos rank higher when it comes to protections of public lands, waterways, um, and just overall conservation. And so um, it's important when reporting and, and telling these stories to, to make that contrast, because it shows that very much to what Beatriz said, that this is not something you have to convince us of. Um, sorry, Beatriz and Yvette. This is not something that we have to be convinced of, right? It's kind of rooted in our culture. It's rooted in our um, historical connections to the land. Um, and if you if you look at a lot of rural um, communities, and, and Beatriz, I'm sure you'll expand on this, but they are um, somewhat, and in, in, in Armando as well, they are somewhat newer immigrant communities, right? If you look, take Colorado, for example, or or New Mexico, northern New Mexico, it's a lot of Hispano, Hispanics, meaning it was Spanish settlers coming and settling these lands and actually in, in complete contradiction to, um, you know, taking these lands from indigenous communities. Um, and so there's a strong uh, Hispanic connection um, and, and Mestizo as well. Um, but the way that you portray that number and you, the way that you, you, um, essentially relay that information is extremely extremely important to how um, the community receives that news story. So for example, somebody in the last workshop said, you know, it matters what um, newspaper, what, what uh, media you, you pitch the story to because if you're talking, if you're a reporter and you're saying this is a Latino community or this is a Chicano community or this is a, you know, a, a Mexican community or Salvador, you know, um, or from Colombia, it really matters to the readers. Um, so going back to the polling, sorry, I kind of went on a small tangent there. Um, it's important when you when you are polling data, right? Is, is it um, new immigrants that are that are um, getting pulled? And if so, do they come from little ranchos? What I mean by this, do they come from little pueblos or towns, meaning they have a much stronger connection than someone, let's say, who's coming from Mexico City or a bigger um, community in, in Mexico, because so many people, I think, just have misconceptions of, of the, these places that people come from, right? Whether it's Mexico or El Salvador or Colombia, right? There's big cities just like here in L We've got LA, New York, you know, Denver, but we also have rural places like Montana and Idaho, and there's still Latinos there. Um, and so it's important to know where the communities that you're actually speaking to or reaching out to or reporting for are from, because um, it matters, the audience matters, but also the the story matters and how you're portraying that community. So I kind of did a whole loop, but. Uh. <laughs> no, that's great. That background's important. I mean, there are some amazing cultural environmental stories out there. I was just thinking um, there was a student group in Santana, the city where I, I'm doing my project, um, that, was, that did a documentary on um, immigrants bringing their corn seeds with them. And so when they cross the border, they sew them into their, the lining of their clothing so that they can then plant them um, in their gardens, in their yards. Um, so 
understanding sort of that background, you know, when you're approaching someone for an environmental story is important because there is that knowledge, that history, and weaving those stories, I think, makes it a much more human story. So um, back to the, 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 the poll, this is, these are statistics that the, um, the foundation has put out, that Chela's foundation has put out, and I, I just wanted to cite one of them, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, that says 82% of Latinos see climate change as a threat to water supply more than any other demographic group, um, and 70% of Latino voters in the West perceive long-term drought as a threat. Um, so I think there's this like built-in audience um, for these issues, um, and how we cover them is important, and one of the things I was talking to Armando about was undercovered stories um, or stories that aren't covered at all. And so, Armando, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the drought-related stories that you're dealing with, but, but also you have some interesting pesticide-related stories, which I think are important, you know, uh, uh, stories that um, have been somewhat covered, but I think there's a lot more to do. So could you address some of that? Sure. I mean, I think we're we're seeing, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, in terms of heat. It's uh, there's a lot more heat issues happening with the droughts and uh, and everything in terms of uh, California. You have workers, for example, in in the San Joaquin Valley in the Bakersfield area working in 110 degrees, 105 degrees, and um, and a lot of them are new immigrants that are you know just recently. I had I had a meeting with about it was about 1,800 farm workers uh, at that were on strike at a at Wonderful Citrus, uh, and they they went on strike after the company dropped their bin rate by five dollars a bin. Might not seem much to you, but that's about two dollars an hour wage cut uh, on average. Uh, so, and when I asked them, I said, "How you know how how often, how long have you been here?" Uh, Ninety-five percent of them of the 1,800 had been here less than five years less than five years. But they were, uh, they were all mostly indigenous farm workers uh, from Chiapas, Guerrero, Oaxaca, uh, the southern states. And they, all this stuff was new to them. So working in the heat was brand new to them. And a lot of them just weren't really, are not being provided the training, even though law, the law requires it. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of aspects of where there's a lot of things happening in the, in the fields where farm workers are exposed because they're working in the elements uh, 24/7, and and the, and the weather patterns change dramatically. You could be 10 miles away and be in a different in a, in a different element because of micro pockets of, t of temperature changes, uh, or you simply go over to the Coachella Valley and you're working on 120, 115, and here we're complaining about the air conditioning or the heater in our offices sometimes. So I think understanding uh, those elements and really uh, digging deeper into what they're facing um, uh, in terms of the heat issues that are happening now uh, that, are, that are a lot more prevalent. And we're getting a lot of pushback from the employers because obviously they're, they're looking at productivity. They're looking at the, at the bottom line. And, so, and, the, and the worker themselves has pressure on themselves because they're putting pressure on themselves because uh, most of the work in agriculture is done by piece rate based on what you make. You know, I don't know if reporters get paid by per story, but so their interest is go faster, do more. And so in that context, they're sacrificing their safety. They are. And sometimes and they're making a conscious effort. They are making a conscious choice to sacrifice that safety because they got rent to pay. They don't know if the work is going to be done the following week 
or not. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I think the, the heat uh, issues are, are, are happening much more. Uh, and also, again, as I indicated earlier, most of them don't have access to health care. So even if they do feel like they're that they're getting uh, that they're getting injured from heat or they're getting injured from the climate, most of the time they ended up just you know putting up with it and just working through it because they don't really have that that safety mechanism to fall back on. So uh, I would say that uh, the climate change and the heat is having a huge impact. And so there's a lot more stories of of those workers that are. Um, that are new uh, and they're, they're not subjective. And I think as a reporter, you know, I know that you probably have limited number of words that you can use or number, but it's getting more into the details, getting more into the actual versus generalizing uh, because it's, it's so hard when I always see, you know, people generalize that people don't really understand. The other, you know, it's just simple things as on pesticides, you know, that most people still don't understand that what you what a farmer worker picks. Let's say uh, right now, it's table grapes, B- biggest industry, one of the biggest industries in California, has about sixty thousand farm workers, and you know as we all know, consumer wants table grapes year round. They don't care. They want it year round. And so, what the farm worker is picking, they're taking it straight from the vineyard, put it in a clamshell, put it in a box, and that box is going straight to the store. Well, to the cooler into the store, and then consumers buying that box. It hasn't been washed, you know. Contrary to popular belief, it hasn't been, you know, uh, processed or it, the, everything was done 100% right there in the field. And so, when you get it as, as a consumer, you you could be and you're popping it right in your mouth because it's a you know I want a nice cool grape. Well, you could you could be consuming dust. You could be consuming uh, pesticide residue, even for the organics. Uh, the, the so-called, I call them so-called organics. Uh, so uh, I think uh, those are little details that I think are still missing. And Beatriz or Jella, would either of you guys like to address the other um, end of the climate change extreme s- snowfall? Because we have a lot of Latino workers who work in these um, industries. So would either one of you guys like to address the climate change question? Too? Yeah. yeah, sure. So um, Latinos, we do farm work, but I don't know if we're not as visible in um, recreation towns as well, which is mainly the territory that that I work. And um, as I mentioned, 30%, at least in the Roaring Fork Valley, Eagle Vale is Latino. So um, these are the people that are building the homes, they're running the hotels, they are all the cooks in the kitchen. They're basically all the workers that aren't visible. Right? You're going to see uh, your bartender and your waitress, but everybody else in the kitchen that's making this industry work are Latinos. So a lot of times the environmental moves, you know, protect our winters and all these movements that we see, it's like really talking about the recreation part of the industry and the, the Latino conversation where it's like we, this is our livelihood as well. That voice is never really included in these dialogues or reporting about climate change and in recreational areas as well and again this is very much very important to our livelihood our lifestyle as well because we are a big part of this industry even though again we're not recognized we're not the ones in the front of the newspaper we're not the ones you know the extreme sports that you always see the same conversations and the same people being represented but you have all this industry is being powered by Latino work 
force. So that's a huge part. And yes, we do care about climate change and these are very important matters to us as well, except the story is always presented a little differently and not representing the whole community yet. I wonder if you want to. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, tying both of these points, if you look at, at some of the census data um, around natural resource workers, about 16% of the Latino community of Latino, of the Latino population in the U.S. are natural resource workers. So that's everything from farm workers to uh, recreation, you know, uh, service and outdoor service industry, um, in addition to construction and timber workers. A lot of people don't know, actually, that uh, timber workers in the Pacific Northwest, in Idaho and Montana, the majority of whom are actually Latinos and they're being paid under the table. They're not being paid living wages, um, and this is this is actually a huge. I think High Country News did a, an article about this a couple years ago. Um, it's a very interesting uh, subsection of that industry that needs to be paid a lot more attention to as well. Because what they're doing is they're saying, "Oh, Latinos are taking to to rural white communities, right? It's seen, oh, Latinos are taking our jobs, but in reality, it's the regional contractors um, that are saying that are are paying low." Lower wages, um, and then blaming it on the Latinos for for so and so, you know, taking their jobs. But in reality, <laughs> right? It, it's it's the fact that the government, the federal government, is not mandating that these contractors pay a living wage to all workers, right? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is is there are about one one or sorry, two to three million um, farm workers in the United States. I think you said sixty thousand in California, but the rest are spread out. You know, that's one. Oh, sorry. Oh, my bad. In the grape industry, I, my apologies. Um, so the effects of heat, the effects of wildfires, they do live in these rural communities, right? And if you look at, so we, we just put out a, a small toolkit around wildfires, right? A lot of Latinos live in homes that have not been retrofitted for wildfires. Um, over 50% of Latinos um, I think it's like 54% of Latinos rent their homes, but even if they own their homes, their older homes, they don't have the capacity or the resources to retrofit them because if you look at wildfires, we're gonna be living with wildfires, you know, whether we like them or not, they're actually a part of the natural ecosystem. What we need to do is really focus on community planning, but those resources aren't being um, directed towards communities, and if they are, they're not being directed towards Latino communities. So all of this being said, um, you know, recreation workers, it, outdoor rec the outdoor recreation industry is about $900 billion. It's like $887 billion. How much of that are Latino communities living in these resort towns contributing to that, paying taxes, if they're, if they're documented or not, but they're not get, seeing the benefits of their taxes being returned to them in the services of healthcare, in tra public transit and transportation. So um, I guess the point I'm trying to say, I know I'm kind of long-winded answer, is that environmental issues in, in conservation conservation issues are very intersectional and a lot of the time that does not get reported. That, that connection to public transit, to public health, to heat stress, to wildfires, to zoning and public and, and um, land use planning, those are not connected to how it's affecting our communities. And so, um, you know, we do need to look at data. And so kind of going back to your question around polling, what is the data and the polling um, around Latinos specifically and, and how, what are the, the um, communication channels in this toolkit you can find it on our website as well we look at how um, you know what are the ways that we interact with media 
do we um, share information via, you know, I think Armando can speak to this a little bit better, via texting and social media? Do we listen to the radio? Do we use TV as the main form of information, of getting information? What are the ways that Latinos communicate? Because it's a lot different than the ways that other communities, and, and even, you know, newer immigrant communities versus Chicanos or old, you know, older populations that have been here for two or three generations communicate much differently. So that's an important thing to, to look into as well. That's a great point, and I'm wondering if the three of you guys can address that, because there's generational differences in terms of technology use, in terms of access to information. Um, so if you guys can address that too, that'd be great. I wanted to give a quick, so I'm gonna give you guys some quick data, just so, um, and then you guys can answer that. But um, right now, approximately 18% of the US population is Latino. So you can imagine, if you have a publication, what that buying power means. Um, by 2050, it's estimated that we're gonna be 25% of the American population. If you are missing out in communicating and integrating 25% of your population, that is a big mistake from a financial standpoint, from a population and community and really representing standpoint. So again, these are just quick numbers. And then I feel like the other big mistake misconception is that we're all undocumented or newly immigrants. Um, so only 3% of the US population is undocumented. Only 3%. The, the dominant message says that people are, Latinos are undocumented or we're new immigrants. That is a very, it's, the story is not portrayed in the right way. There are generations that have been here for a very long time and as soon as they see a brown face, you're a new immigrant. So I feel like that is a very, it's a misconception that Latinos are new immigrants. So that's, I just want to give you guys that number really quickly. Well, you know, I'll just focus on in terms of technology and what they're using and uh, we've been uh, doing a lot, especially with the newer workforce and even the older workforce. Um, I think the major part is the assumption that when they look at farm workers, they look as an educated workforce. And, a lot, and, and what you're gonna find is if you start digging deeper, a lot of them are actually very educated. They just didn't have the opportunities that they, that, you know, they thought they should have or they could have and they decided to come here. Uh, but they're, they, I, I find a lot of professionals with degrees working in the fields all the time. And so sometimes that's a, something that doesn't really go to reporting because most of the time we look at those those workers as kind of general labor, uh, but there's a tremendous, we consider themselves professionals. It just don't have the titles, because I mean, I'll tell you right now, you try to pick those tomatoes as fast as they're picking them, it takes a lot of skill to pick a tomato, the right tomato, the right size, the right color, and at the same time, take off the, take off the, the stem uh, to, for quality purposes in a, in a rapid motion, they, they do it so fast you don't even see it. And so there are skilled professionals out there, they just, you know, you don't call them that, we all treat them as general labor, so it's something that doesn't really go reported. And that's in every industry, I'm picking on tomatoes, but every industry has that. Secondly, in terms of technology usage, um, most of them are now on Facebook or WhatsApp. And the reason for that is with the advent of uh, the free Boost Mobiles, crickets, and all that stuff, they figured out really quickly, I want to communicate with my family, and how can I do that? Well, all these platforms are free. So most of them are, 
on, are on Facebook. And what they used to do in terms of communicating, for example, looking for jobs, they used to go to the corner store and they, they have the little paper where the contractor would put a, a job ad. Not anymore. There, it's all, 90% of it is doll, it's all being done through Facebook groups and they're job hunting and they're, and they're like day traders. They're, they're comparing, if you look at them, if you understand Spanish and you see, and they're comparing, okay, well, what kind of job is it? What's the rate? What's the, what's the ambiente? They're, they ask right away, what's the environment? Are you treating people right? And, and it becomes a free-for-all. There's conversations happening online all all time through social medias. And so they're communicating. That's really not being reported, but they're communicating. There's also huge amounts of WhatsApp WhatsApp groups that the, the, the farm workers themselves are forming and communicating uh, amongst themselves on where the best jobs are, where the best conditions are, what kind of treatment is. And, and it's not just within a certain region, because you got people uh, recruiting from Colorado, come work in the hemp industry, you know, Oregon, come and work over here. And so they're trying to, they're trying to advertise and they're using those platforms to communicate. Uh, so, and then last point regarding the, um, the, the wildfires that Chela mentioned, we went through a lot of wildfires and we're going through more, we're gonna be going through more. But farm workers are some of the, I mean, most people focus on the loss of the homes. And that's obviously that's, that's visible. But what a lot of the farm workers, for example, we saw in Santa Rosa when the fires were hitting over there, uh, one, workers either weren't able to get, all, get to work, so a lot of them couldn't collect unemployment, so they couldn't work. Um, or two, they, uh, they were working, but they were having to put up with, this, with the smoke. And they were being provided, some of them were being provided the little masks, but those things are, you know, again, remember, these workers are being paid by piece rate, production. So you try to work with those things and you're trying to go fast, you can't breathe. So they, you know, the growers trying to uh, provide, sometimes provide them with low cheap masks uh, and they're, it's almost like a Band-Aid. It's like, here, I provide you a mask and 90% of them opt not to use them. Why? Because if I'm being paid by piece rate, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're not, I'm not gonna make any money. And so unfortunately, you're forcing me to make a decision. It's either my rent money or wear a mask. And guess which one they're choosing. So that's not really a choice. So there's the impacts of those fires. And so one of the things we did a lot using social media, when the Red Cross was trying to provide services out there and they were focusing on, on housing and they were focusing on issues, they couldn't reach the Latino population. They couldn't because the trust, the environment that's been created with the immigration rhetoric and all the hate rhetoric is so terrible that um, we ended up working with them and we ended up, uh, we were distributing food through the Red Cross, but we were just basically serving as a bridge. And we were serving about, uh, about a thousand families a day. And we did this organized about 10 different communities uh, with 100% volunteer driven all through Facebook. I never, I never even actually met the committees. They themselves formed. They, they were communicating via Facebook Messenger, and they, and we were able to provide, give uh, the Red Cross a, a way to provide the the the, the service because they had the resources. They just didn't have anybody they can give it to. So we were able to use that technology to communicate with those farm worker families, and they we had the trust from them. So therefore, they were able to get the food that they needed. So there's a lot of micro stories in there that can be reported. So a lot of the work that the three of you guys do is um, built upon that trust that's earned over time. Um, I'm wondering, um, because especially in some of the hard to reach places like the, either through distance, 
language barriers, whatever it might be. Um, I'm wondering, you know, we have a room full of reporters and editors here. I'm wondering if you can talk about how the three of you have done your work to earn that trust and what journalists can do to earn that trust. I mean, one of the things the three of us talked about is the dwindling news resources, especially in um, smaller towns, rural places. Um, and so it's it's likely to be a reporter from an urban area um, or a reporter that has to cover an entire state. So um, what what suggestions would you have for this group? Oh, God. Um, I'll just use our strategy. Um, I don't think it's relevant for all communities. It really does depend, I think I've said this multiple times, on the community you are working with. Um, but. We work, we work a lot with churches. We work a lot with faith leaders. And, and you ask us why, it's because a lot of Latinos um, you know, go to church. That's a, that's a place of congregation. Um, and so we work with faith leaders to really relay a lot of information quickly. Um, and to do that, I think you need to build trust with the faith leader themselves. You, it takes a long process. It's not an overnight thing. Um, and as reporters, I think you can also take advantage of, of saying, hey, you know, what are the, what are the issues impacting your church and your community members? And it doesn't have to come from a faith perspective. You don't have to report on it from a faith perspective. They actually appreciate you coming and saying what's going on in your community because they do somewhat serve as kind of gatekeepers to the community because they are such a trusted, if somebody from, you know, the outside comes in and, and the faith leader or the pastor or priest says, I really trust this person, you're going to have access to the rest of the congregation. And so um, that's just a strategy that we use. We really build trust with, with certain community members. Um, and you don't break that trust, right? You, you, it's a long-term commitment. You can't just say, hey, I'm coming in for the next six months to do this story and then bye, peace out. Um, you actually, you know, have to commit to, you don't have to go to church, right? You, you, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. You know, take them out to lunch, get to know them, um, but say, hey, you know, even if it's not something I report on, you can come to me with anything and I can put you at least in touch with the right person, right? That's what trust is, is that reciprocal. Somebody said the reciprocal nature in the, in the, uh, over there. <laughs> um, and, and that's the same with our community, right? You need to build that trust and it, it needs to be reciprocal. I would, I would add to that, that it really has to be an authentic relationship. People are smart. They know when they're being used for this one sole purpose. And when you're pushing an agenda on someone and you're not hearing the whole story or you don't want to see the whole story. I feel like people really should be more sensitive. Um, the other part too is the documentation part. If you're, you know, if you're trying to write an article about equity in schools or health or all these other issues, I feel like that documentation and like certain like questions about where are you from? When did you come here? It always turns people off. Right? What, what, what does it matter? So I feel if that is always in the forefront of each conversation is your legal status, it's like you're, you're turning people off right there. You're not, you're not even being sensitive to their situation. I've had multiple reporters come to our community and they start this relationship with a, a mother at a school and she's willing to participate and give her information. And as soon as they start asking, what is your legal status? I'm gonna talk about this in the newspaper. It's like, why is this important if you're talking about how your kids are treated in school. 
it has absolutely nothing to do. So it's 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 really it turns people off and it makes them afraid because of this national conversation about your status. That right there, you're breaking the connection. You're not allowing that person. You're like, don't share my name. Don't share my information. And and just go to the heart of your story and what you really is important about it, and not all these other little details that are surrounding the Latino community, because you're gonna turn people away and you're not gonna get a true story from them. So if, if it's not relevant, don't ask it. Don't center your story on documentation, on migration patterns, and just be sensitive that these people, th this hurts the community. It, it's, it's, it's a big subject, and even if that person is documented, maybe they're, their family history or they have a family member, and they just keep hearing this national, like, the m dominant message about Latinos, and, and that automatically sets you in a bad relationship with this community. So just be sensitive to these things that hurt the community. And I feel like if there's an authentic approach and relationship, you will get a good story and you will get a good insight into our community. Do you want to address this too? Sure. I'll just add, I think, I mean, the flexibility in terms of you know the immigration status is a very key issue, especially with pharmacy communities. You know, be willing to change names, willing to not show their face. That's it's a huge issue, especially to try to get the story because that's the number one fear out there for them. Uh, with all these stories right now, hey, they're you know ICE is using Facebook to to track your status, um, or there's I nine audits happening. It's just it's a lot of fear out there right now, and so their willingness to participate is very limited because of that fear. Um, the other part I would suggest is uh, um, have flexibility. I understand that we all have, a de you know, you all have deadlines, but understand, for example, farm workers always get reports like, hey, can I meet at 10 o'clock in the morning? I said, yeah. You're not. You're going to meet with me, maybe, but the, but not with anybody else. Unfortunately, most farm workers are working uh, 10, 10, 11 hours a day, and so they're not available until uh, usually after six, because even if depending on their commute, because they could be commuting, uh, you know, an hour away for their work or two hours away, depending on the on the industry, depending on where they're, where they're at. And and on that note, actually, I do mind you remind you that um and this doesn't really get reported, but the farm workers are actually. Uh, they probably are the biggest carpoolers out there, and they, you know, before Uber and before Lyft, uh, they were, they have been carpooling and ride sharing forever. A lot of it has to do with necessity, obviously, but it also comes from cultural traditions in Mexico and other parts where they don't have cars, so they're always commuting with their friends or commuting with the, on the bus, etc. Uh, I don't think that really gets reported, but you see a lot of the cars, and it's like they're loaded because, well, you know, and and yeah, they're paying, you know, they, they you know they're paying six dollars a day, seven dollars a day, depending on what the rate is uh, for that ride. So that's one little point that you should be aware of. And and the other part is um, understand that a lot of the farm workers it, it changes. It, it not every year it, it, it's changing. The demographics change in terms of, but a lot of them are indigenous farm workers, and not, and just because they might be from Mexico, they don't necessarily speak Spanish. We get that all the time. Just like me. People look at me and especially the farmer because sometimes I'm like, look at that gabacho. He speaks pretty good Spanish. Well, I guess what? I'm from Sinaloa and there's where we tend to be taller and whiter over there. You know, but that doesn't mean that I don't speak Spanish. But so I get that too a little bit from the farm workers. But they speak a variety of different languages and and the language could change from one town to the next. 
So you you know they could say I'm I'm I speak Mixteco Alto, but it's not the same type as as Mixteco Alto as as my friend over here who's about two towns over. There's a lot of iterations of the same exact language, um, and and be careful that you actually call it language versus a dialect. Uh, they're they're very sensitive to those issues. So just you know just say hey, it's a language. Don't call it a, a dialect, you know. Um, and then the other is, I would say, dig deeper uh, on some of the issues. I, I see a lot of statements where uh, employers are saying, we're offering health care, because that's what, you know, labor shortages right now they're talking about. And they're saying, we're offering competitive wage. And I say, really, what does that mean to you? And they usually say, well, I'm paying 12 bucks an hour, minimum wage. You're really trying, aren't you? You know, or they say, oh, we offer health care. And, and the reporter says, oh, yeah, there are this, 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 this employer is offering health care. You're not digging deeper and asking, well, actually, yeah, it'll cost you 200 bucks a week. And guess what? They have a deductible of $5,000. Uh, so the worker's really saying, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. But, the, but on the story, it's saying the employer's offering health care. Right, so there's just look, dig a little deeper on those type of stories, because uh, that 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 matters. Uh, so just a couple of points there. Thanks, Armando. So um, we're running out of time. I want to make sure that we open it up to questions. If anyone has a question, I'll do the same thing and repeat the question. Go ahead. Okay. So the question, just for the record, is how how do news outlets build their readership? Um, which one of you guys want to tackle that one? I think um, how you portray the story is important, and I feel like you guys are really trying to, to do that and have um, Latino voices telling their own stories or indigenous people or whoever versus how you're seen versus how you say your story. I think that's really important. Um, the other part, too, is I, I know it's really hard for um, Latinos, some speak and read Spanish, some don't, but I feel like, so Spanish is the second largest language spoken in the United States, and if there is an opportunity to start appealing, even um, so your news organization is being recognized by the Latino community or that intentionality, I feel like that can be a huge appeal to just really um, start recognizing that English is not the only language in this country and there are people that very much enjoy reading in different languages and I think that can be very valuable as well um, and and some people are, are very versed in their native language and they can um, understand more complex um, words and subjects in their native language than they can in English. So sometimes when you're reporting about something that's a little more complicated and you're using, um, I guess, just more complicated concepts and words, they might understand it a little easier in Spanish. But that might be a good way if it's a possibility. I know it's hard to do everything in Spanish, but maybe start to pitch specific subjects? That's one opinion, but. Um, I'm actually going to go back to the example with the churches. Um, those pastors, at, le at least the pastors that we work with, love to get featured in stories. <laughs> they, if you feature them in a story, they will share it with all of their congregation on Facebook, you know, on WhatsApp. They will share it because they want to, they, they like the recognition. Normally they don't get the recognition. And so I think just doing that on a regular basis, not, not just the faith leaders, but people in their congregation, they 
they will get hooked on your news outlet because they're like, wow, I see my face. I see the faces of my community, especially in these rural areas where they don't get that attention. They don't get that that recognition. And so um, I think it's really important to just show that their faces and their voices are in these publications on a regular basis. Um, you'll get that readership or that, um, you know, one, one thing I noticed for those of you who do radio or TV, 95% of Hispanics actually tune into the radio on average once a week at least. And I know there's like Latino USA and, and things like that, but those are, that's at like nine o'clock at night, um, <laughs> right? Like who's gonna be listening to the radio that late? So make it accessible, make it something they can listen to on their carpool to work, during work, um, you know, a lot of my um, acquaintances, my husband works in, in the wind turbine manufacturer. He actually doesn't get featured at all. There's tons of Latinos working in renewable energy. Where are those faces being reported, right? And not just because he's Latino, but because he's working in, in renewables. Um, and he listens to music and things all day because he grinds, you know, he's just doing the same repetitive task daily so he can listen to music or podcasts or the radio. So just having their voices and their faces in these stories is really important. Armando, you probably have an interesting perspective on this too, because you were when we spoke, you had talked about the, what you mentioned before about digging deeper and doing investigations, and to address the the question about um, you want to serve the audience and provide news that helps them live a better life, for instance, a healthier life. And I think that's a big issue for Latinos across the board. You know, we were talking about wildfires and and pesticides. I mean, there's so many issues where Latino workers are affected. Um, and we talked about the dearth of investigative reporting in these areas. So are there ways that reporters can try to address this to get that audience, that readership? I mean, I think they, they want to see themselves in the, in the news. They want to, you know, they want to hear their stories and, you know, make, you know, versus broad, gen generic. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I guess I feel like um, like real investigative reporting is almost dying or dead. Uh, that's from a consumer perspective, not from because obviously I'm not a reporter at all. So, but I just feel that we're not able to provide the stories that are that are happening. And in, in, for example, um, there was um, a pesticide exposure, and it was actually we had about three back-to-back -back pesticide exposure cases in, in the Central Valley in the Fresno area where farm workers were, um, were exposed to pesticides and um, very little coverage on it. Uh, it wasn't until we got involved and started basically raising hell because um, um, an ag commissioner uh, started talking about how there really was no violations that they could find. And I said, how is that possible? You know, you had emergency crews out there. You had reporters. I mean, you had uh, farm workers that were throwing up, dozens of them throwing up, and yet you're making a statement of uh, that there was no violations identified. So I think, um, and and the workers, you know, unfortunately go back to their life. But you know, following up and telling those stories and and try to make it positive in terms of what if they did something to make a change, uh, because we hear all the negative stuff. But they, they want to see themselves in the stories. They want to see uh, some the real impacts. So I think, um, uh, like with this farm worker, I remember I was just talking to him uh, where they were told, well, uh, you already had a prior incident, and you can't connect it to pesticides. And that's one of the biggest issues. It's like there's no 
the the connecting the uh, the 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 issue, the health concern with with the pesticide is extremely difficult because uh, you, you got to have a nexus, and and there's very little sometimes to to back that up. So there's uh, and farmworkers are exposed to pesticides uh, almost every day, but there's no nexus legally speaking, uh, and so uh, they're they kind of go back and they go back into the just into the woodwork of just everyday life, and maybe they'll find something happening to them 10 years from now, but then you, they can't connect it to that specific incident. Uh, so I would say doing more human interest stories, doing more uh, of uh, stories where they see themselves in there, I think that would help a lot more. And those accountability stories, like holding the agencies that are supposed to provide the oversight accountable. Right. Uh, let's see. Go ahead. Yes, you. So the question is about migration patterns and how to tell that story, that personal history um, for them. Go ahead. Well, I, first of all, I think it's really important, um, the context of what you're reporting. I think that's that's really important. If, if it is about migration or immigrant stories, I, I feel like you know you can highlight and that can be something that people are very much willing to share. Sometimes I feel like it's irrelevant um, and I think you also have to have the sensitivity and that authentic relationship with that person to see if they're willing to share that part of their story with you. Um, sometimes it can be very painful. Sometimes you can feel like it's not something that you just want to portray or share or you feel it's adequate. So I think that really depends on you as well. Is like, does this really matter to, to my story? Um, because there's other, there's a lot of other stories and that are beautiful that don't have this negative lens about migration or the, the trauma, because that's associated with trauma a lot of times as well. So I, I don't know. Does, does that make sense to just kind of feel it out, make sure it makes sense in your story and it's relevant? Because sometimes it's not necessarily relevant to what you're talking about. I mean, if we're talking about farmers and safety and pesticide, does it matter where they come from? Probably not. I mean, you're talking about the human condition. You're talking about um, safety at work. Does that matter where you're from? Or I don't think it should matter. You should have safety. You should have the proper education and the safety nets. So I think, I don't know, just kind of being sensitive to that, I think that would be my, um, what I would recommend. So Chela, you might want to answer this. So about voting demographics and telling the stories about Latino voters and the issues they care about. Yeah, I actually think it's ex it's not extractive. I think it gives us recognition for our, our electoral potential. Um, <clears throat> every 30 seconds, a Latino is turning 18. A Latino citizen is turning 18. So can you imagine the potential that we have for making significant change in this country, both around environmental issues and all other issues around health care? Um, education, retirement, right? Those are in our direct best interest. And so I don't, and I, I'm not gonna speak for anyone else, but, but I have worked on campaigns. I've run political campaigns. I'm not speaking as Hispanic access right now, right? <laughs> just just to put that out there. Um, I, I've gotten a, a, um, a Latina elected to the state legislature. And so, to, uh, not to say that it's, 
you know, I don't think it's extractive to say, you know, Latinos, we have the potential. And if you actually target us and if you say Latino voters are on the rise and are turning out numbers, you're actually empowering us to get even more Latinos out because we're, we're reinforcing that statistic, essentially saying, yeah, my, you know, my sister voted, my brother voted, my mom voted. How do we get my abuelo and my, my abuela to vote? Right. We're, we're saying, hell yeah. Thank you for, for saying that. It's, it's saying, um, it's kind of like someone says, you know, you can't do that, right? And then we're, we're like, well, watch us, right? <laughs> so um, I personally don't think it's attractive. I think it's really empowering to tell those numbers and to tell those statistics and to tell that polling and even gather that polling to begin with if, if your organization does do, you know, specific data set polling. <clears throat> because it's important to show that um, only 3% are undocumented, and a lot of us are registered to vote, and a lot of us maybe aren't engaged to vote. We may, uh, sorry, uh, maybe we're registered to vote because of automatic uh, registration, or maybe we're not, but um, overall, I think if you report on it, you need to, you do need to extract that Latino data because it, it does show the strength in our numbers. Um, I, on the flip side, I don't know what that does to aggravate, you know, anti-Latinos, anti you know, to show <laughs> that we're on the rise. Um, but just keep in mind that, like I said, every 30 seconds, a Latino citizen is turning 18. Excuse me. All right, get someone in the back. So is there state-level data on the renewable <laughs> energy sector? I don't know about state-level. I know there is at the federal level, but Unfortunately, not specifically. It is. It, yeah. So we do have. Oh, oh, we do have some data on that. Um, you know, f such as. Um, you know, 78% of Latino voters compared to 68% of all voters think that increasing the use of renewable energy sources like wind and solar will create jobs. So there are, there is data out there. You just kind of have to really dig deep. It took me, I want to say, about two months to create, to find all of these data sources just because they're so hidden in certain polling and certain data sets. You really have to be very specific about how you find that data. Um, you can find this on our website, too. And I just wanted to... Um, not in terms of number, but at least the Latino population, um, they're not as highly tied to oil and gas because they don't really get the high-paying um, jobs that you know usually your um, Anglo community does. They're you know fresh out of high school and they can make a lot of money. The Latinos that do kind of work in these industries, they end up having the worst, most toxic part of these jobs, unfortunately. So you don't have that like super high connection to these um, industries where they're like going to protect them because their whole livelihood is around it. So there's not that uh, affinity for these for these um, industries, just for reference. You brought that up. Just, yeah, to, go ahead. Just, to, just to add to that on the voting part, I mean, I know we focus on the citizenship and, and the, the voters, but guess what? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the target is those that are voting, but uh, we just experienced it. Like, for example, the last election in November of last year, uh, we we had about 150 folks out walking precincts, walking, uh, mobilizing. I would say about two-thirds of them were not registered to vote. They don't necessarily, you know, obviously they don't, they don't go and vote themselves, but as we always use to say, you know what, you can't vote because you're not a citizen, you're, you know, the right, but guess what? 
that doesn't that can't stop you from engaging others and getting two or three others to vote for yourself and so and that and that's what a lot of them do and especially with you know the parents uh that maybe they're not they're not they don't have they're not eligible to vote but they have their kids and they're eligible to vote and so they moved them. So I think there's, uh, there's a lot of different impacts that are happening when, like I said, we just experienced, we had about 150 folks out there walking in November. Uh, two thirds of them couldn't vote. They were farm workers, but they, they, they mobilized and they, they actually helped win the, uh, an assembly race where a grower funded uh, opponent was trying to uh, knock out uh, an assembly member for voting for uh, farm workers to have the f overtime for the first time ever in this country. So, uh, so it, it's you know there's a lot of different aspects to to voting on that. Sorry. Um, if I may add to that point, actually, um, I've noticed that a lot of Latinos will vote together. So it's not an individual, I'm going to fill out my ballot and then mail it in, right? Latinos will carpool to the polls together. They will or have like a family voting and party, but it's not called a party. It's just like, you know, let's have some, some dinner. Let's go through the questions and vote together, um, documented, you know, or undocumented. The whole family's there and making decisions together. And so I think one thing, if you're reporting, make sure that you have information readily available like where are the polling sites where um, where can they register to vote around the census right making sure that people know that they don't have to be documented to re to participate in the census and that the, they will be protected that information is not going to be used against them so I think it's really important to, to tell the story but also include a very specific section in the in the um, print or online portion of the site right where it has specific information boxed out that's very easily available and, and visible because people's eyes you know go straight to that and they have the exact information that they that they need for their families to do you know at a, at a voting table they can say oh you know this is this is because in, in Denver specifically they send out like a polling like a voting sheet with all of the information and it's uh, unbiased information that they sent out but but make sure that that's available right in your stories that say hey go to this denvergov.org whatever and find that information great we have to wrap up or do we have time for one more question wrap up okay well i just want to thank our panelists for this great presentation i hope you guys um gathered information for stories um and for their work and um and thank you all for being here